It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Future of Media Explained with me, Press Gazette UK editor Charlotte Tobit. And this week... We are talking about Elle's membership scheme and the future of magazines. Here with me is Press Gazette Editor-in-Chief Dominic Ponsford. Hi, Dom. Hi, Charlotte. So we're talking about magazines this week, which is always good fun. Do you want to set the scene for us in terms of magazines at the moment in 2023? Well, I feel like it's been a while since we talked about consumer mags on the podcast, but they're obviously a huge media sector still. I think overall, what you can say is not as desperate probably as daily newspapers in terms of print circulation, but print circulation is still under you know, quite a lot of pressure and is generally going down. I think the thing about magazines is it also depends a lot on trends and it varies a lot from sector to sector. So, for instance, news magazines actually do pretty well. Like Private Eye has hardly lost any sales over the years. You know, the um, Economist does really well. Uh, you know, lads mags almost completely disappeared, and women's mags, which we're going to talk about today, with L or L, to use the French, are doing reasonably reasonably well. I didn't expect we were going to get a French accent, so that was very good fun. Thank you. So, um. I think it's worth noting when you're talking about sales that the other thing is that some, although newsstand sales are going down, are growing subscriptions. So they're doing well with kind of the people that they really connect with. And with L, we're going to talk about memberships, aren't we? So I guess kind of an even further developed version of subscriptions. Tell us what's going on. Exactly. So the women's sector is, ha- is having quite a tough time of it, to be honest. And especially the titles that have got a slightly younger demographic, like Cosmo and L, they're losing losing print readers fairly quickly, I would say, which is really as a result of demographics. So post pandemic, L UK is in quite a sharp drop in print circulation, especially paid for print. So they are having to have a close look at how they sort of reinvent themselves and kind of broaden their business model. And for them. Yeah, it's interesting. It's it's they've got a paywall. They've obviously got the monthly magazine, but they've launched a membership scheme called L Collective, which is um, not that cheap. It's like one hundred and fifty pounds a year. Although if you sign up now, you get um, a free ad- luxury um, makeup advent calendar, which is worth one hundred and twenty five pounds on its own, and you get the subscription as well. So that's quite a good deal. But for them, 
it's membership. Yeah, so it's this idea that if you're an L reader, it's more than just you know going in the news agent. You actually got it's actually sort of a bit of a sense of your identity, and um, you might pay a bit more to feel a bit closer to the club and get a sort of um, bit more access and, and other sort of goodies. Yeah, so it's interesting that Elle's doing that now. I wrote a couple of years ago about Empire, the film magazine, trying it out and a couple of other kind of smaller titles. So it'll be interesting to see how it does for Elle. I think you're right. It's about feeling part of something, isn't it, rather than just ad hoc picking something up. You spoke to the editor of Elle, is that right? Yeah, so Kenya Hunt, who's been there a couple of years. She's had a big career in magazines before that at Grazia and uh, also at Elle previously as deputy editor. She's American. She spoke to me a bit about what L stands for today, what you get for this membership, kind of why they're doing it and why she thinks it's going to work. It's quite an exciting time by the looks of things. You've launched L Collective, which is a membership scheme. You've got the digital subscription, £30. You've got the digital and print, £40. Or for £150, you can join this membership scheme, L Collective. Full disclosure, I've actually bought, bought a um, membership for my daughter. How amazing. I love the sound of that. You've got an excellent offer, which is L Advent Calendar. These amazing sort of cosmetics. That's what my, my daughter's in, really into all that. So, uh, but tell me how it's going, and just t- and and just tell us a little bit about the proposition, I guess. Albeit you've got this launch offer with the with the advent calendar, but normally it's 150 pounds a year. It's quite a big step up, isn't it? So, what's that? That's your not well, not quite as much as a Netflix subscription, but it's quite it's a big step up. So, what what what's the value proposition there? What do readers get for that? Well, in terms of the value proposition, what readers get, I mean, so we've always had a really vibrant, dynamic, engaged community. So for us, this is very much uh, an organic next step forward in terms of, you know, the evolution of our brand and our relationship with our audiences. Um, and so in terms of what they get, I mean, it's very much this sense of like harnessing the power of, of women collectively. Um, and essentially, we are giving them access to the, you know, the daily joys that we experience every day as an L editor. They are getting the opportunity to sort of experience what we we do every day. So we try the beauty products first, we go and see the exhibitions, we go see the films, we go on the trips. We have the, you know, these amazing opportunities to engage with thought leaders, women who are sort of driving the discussions that are dominating our group chats, women who are sitting at the, you know, center of fashion and beauty and culture, conversations around sustainability, finance, work, career, all of these areas. So it's really sort of inviting these women into our world and and allowing them to have the chance to network with each other. And also as a part of that, it's also giving them um, exposure to the fashion world. I know when I was coming up in Virginia, the world of fashion seemed so far removed from the hometown that I grew up on the on the coast. You know, I didn't have a foot in the door. I would follow it via magazines and television and things like that. And it just seemed like this really far away, glamorous, insular community. And so now, you know, it's, it's just, I think it's such a beautiful thing to be able to open up what we do to women in this way, especially in a climate like this, where there's so much discussion around the fashion industry and how it operates and what it means. But in terms of the value proposition that, you know, I think it's actually, it's, it's a pretty amazing quite a lot. I mean, if, having come up as a student reading L for a long time, I would have loved to have participated in something like this and be able to sort of access the team, but also more importantly, 
you know, access all of these other experiences that we will be providing for our community. So you're sort of sharing some of the sort of perks and, and access that you guys have as sort of insiders and bringing other people in, I guess. Is that? Yeah, I mean, I think the access, access is a really key word here. So I think the access is the point because historically fashion has been very exclusive. It's that it's this idea of, you know, historically the runway shows happens and, you know, far off in Paris, only a few, a very, very small handful could get access to it. Um, the world of beauty, all of these sort of extensions of what we do for a long time, they were very sort of exclusive. And so I, it's really this sense of access and being able to participate in it. And so, yeah, I was going to ask you what L's sort of target readers are and what kind of L stands for. Because I kind of, like you say, I sort of see that world of kind of haute couture and imagine it's kind of quite exclusive. And you look at Vogue, that's probably up there a bit. Is L trying to be a little bit more inclusive than maybe some other brands? Or how do you fit into that pantheon of fashion? Well, a thing that I like about Elle, when I first took on this role in March as editor, having previously worked at L before, um, I spent a lot of time in the archives here, you know, looking at all of the editions of the British edition going all the way back to the 85. Um, and then I also went to France and spent a lot of time in the archives there, looking at the editions from the 80s and 70s and 60s and so forth um, and beyond. And the thing that I think has always made Elle stand out as a brand is that it's never looked at fashion within the bubble of fashion. You know, it's always really connected the dots between fashion and um, the world of culture, like whatever was happening at large, you know, I think lots of conversations around like feminism, women's equality, reproductive aut autonomy and all those things. Elle has always really embraced those conversations. I'll never forget there was an edition of Elle France. They were the first to shoot a cover star without makeup. And it was quite a really groundbreaking thing at the time. They leaned into that conversation around retouching and like, you know, this, these really strict, uh, narrow standards of beauty that magazines had sort of propagated for so long. So I think with Elle, Elle has always really stood out for really embracing the wider context against which fashion is created, while at the same time fully enjoying the beauty and the joys of, of fashion at its highest art form, whether that be couture or ready to wear, or whether it's produced in Paris or New York or London, while at the same time embracing the high streets you know, that, that great history of the British high street, which we all know now is in a real state of flux. So I think Elle has always really kind of struck that balance between the high and low really beautifully. It's always been a sweet spot for us. And, you know, like approaching the low with the same level of rigor that we would approach the high and approaching the high with that same sense of levity that we would approach the low, you know, that, that kind of like um, that sweet spot that so many all journalists like aim to, to achieve. I think Elle has always sat in that place. So um, for us, it just feels like a really thrilling time, especially now that we're in a place as an industry where fashion is really being confronted with some pretty hardcore issues, you know, in terms of the climate crisis, the cost of living crisis, rising geopolitical tensions. It's creating like a really kind of fizzy environment for the fashion industry at large. So I think, yeah, it's a really thrilling time for us as a team because it just gives us a lot to dig into. Um, is a, a media title, but a lot to discuss with our readers. Like I think, you know, our readers, these are women and people who are really engaged and who want to sort of help make sense of this moment. And so as editors, we've never looked at it as us speaking to them from on high, but us really engaging in a dialogue with them in which we learn as much from them as they learn from us. And that, um, that sort of issue around beauty, ideas of beauty and idealized forms of beauty is very hot at the moment, isn't it? Obviously with social media and mental health really isn't it i mean where do you stand on on that 
now in terms of the the models you use in the magazine and on whether or not images are retouched after photos have been taken and so on. Ironically, we just had quite an extensive chat yesterday about a cover that's going to press today because um, we wanted to pull the retouching back and and really show our cover stars, um, show some of the lines of the texture in her skin, like you show it as it is, and which is beautiful and stunning. And so I think with us, it's a constant conversation where we're constantly questioning ourselves, but also listening to the feedback that we're getting from our readers. And we don't really take this responsibility that we have lightly, I think because we all grew up with these titles that we work for and that we read and work alongside. And we know how influential these images are. We grew up impacted by these images. And so we really do take that responsibility seriously. So we really um, aim to, to show a real sort of spectrum of beauty. Age is one that I'm looking at quite a lot because we haven't done as much of it as I would like. We're always looking at the size conversation, particularly when it comes to size zero, because I think that affects everyone, um, you know, no matter your economic background, race, anything, you know, that the size one is, is something that really resonates and, and um, hits a lot of women so deeply. So that's definitely something that we're always looking at, you know, conversations around disability, so we really try to um, be sensitive and responsible and respectful in terms of these images of beauty that we're celebrating and promoting. Hi, I'm Anoush and I host the New Statesman podcast. Twice a week, we get under the skin of Westminster to help understand what's going on and what's going to happen next. We interview politicians, policymakers, and people on the front line to get you the full story behind the headlines. Plus, hear from our award-winning editorial team, including political editor Andrew Marr, to get to the bottom of what on earth is happening. Listen to the New Statesman podcast. You can subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. So look at the the magazine itself. I can see, you know, look at the ABC figures. There's been quite a big shift post-COVID in terms of the print circulation. So quite a big drop since then. And I just wondered how is is your audience sort of changing the way the way they access things? Are you having to shift things around a lot in order to respond to that? And where do you see the sort of the print edition going in in relation to the other things you've got going on? I always love that question because I feel like as long as I've been working, it's just been a constant shifting <laughs> to adjust to the you know our ever-changing sort of consumption habits. We At Ella, I feel like we're having a really great moment right now because we our September single-issue sales were up 24% year-on-year, which was um, you know really exciting for us as a team in the October issue, backed that up um, with a single sales um, increase of, of 1%. So it's nice to sort of see a bucking of the trend at the moment, but you are right. Like the climate is very challenging, I think for, for print newsstand subscriptions and all that, but we have subscriptions is a really big area for us because we do have such an engaged audience, but also the, you know, the magazine will never not be an important um, part of what we do. I can speak to the present. The magazine is incredibly important. It's a very important part of what we do in an anchor, but it exists within a really sort of dynamic, diverse ecosystem. And so I think, you know, for us, it's um, it's very much 
L is a brand that exists across all the all of these different touch points, which increase the scope of storytelling that we get to do as editors. So, you know, we're across our website, which has a very large audience. We're across our social media channels. Um, and then now we have collective. So we have the, the membership, which is sort of a tighter focus with, you know, even deeper engagement. So I think it's really, you know, I think our readers are are changing and evolving. We also have a podcast series that we're preparing to begin um, recording the second, third and fourth series for. So I think the habits are definitely changing, but the nice thing about it is that it allows us greater opportunities and new ways to sort of experiment and, and think through what we do. So I think if anything, it's just a constant sharpening of um, how we're thinking and what we're doing. And you're in charge of L-U-K, but obviously L, as the name suggests, began in France, La France, <laughs> and it's still still big there, I imagine. Uh, but how do you fit in with the other L editions around the world? Or is the UK a kind of completely independent operation, sort of operating under franchise? And how does it work? So we actually do have, um, there's a lot of communication and collaboration among all the editors globally. And I think that's always been the case um, with L. You know, the, we have these biannual breakfasts that we do and planning lunches every Paris Fashion Week. You know, we convene at the Creon and all come together and share each other's plans over lunch. And then there's a breakfast the following morning for the wider L teams who can make it. And everyone just has a moment together, which is really nice. And then we will, you know, historically, we've collaborated on really big cover gets. When I first started last November, we all collaborated on Adele as she was preparing for her residency in Vegas. When um, Beyonce launched Ivy Park a number of years ago, we all banded together for that cover, which dropped the same day around the world. Um, The same with Rihanna when she launched Fenty, we all sort of collaborated together. So I think there is definitely that sense of collaboration for bigger projects or for shoots that make sense for us. So there, there is that sense of a sharing of plans and, and, and collaborating and working together while also at the same time celebrating the difference, like what makes each of our regions and our markets so unique, which is really important to us. So I think the spirit of L is universal, but then you know our cities and our countries are also vastly different in a lot of ways that for us, it, it, it is still very important to speak to the audience in our, our home countries and cities yeah i saw and i don't know if this is right but the 40, is it 45 editions worldwide yeah which is it's sort of amazing isn't it that that brand can work in so many different territories there must be a universality about it that transcends different cultures in a way Yes, absolutely. And I think a lot of it is that kind of spirit that I was mentioning before, like looking at those old L's far back, you know, um, decades and decades ago, like how you that spirit of the brand was still very much present in there, that sense of women who love fashion, but they're women of substance, women who who know that a dress is not just a dress, but that it, it means something. It's an expression of who we are, the people that we are in our sense of style. And I think there's a certain attitude, you know, there's very much an embracing of feminism, for instance, and not a shying away from it. So I think that there's definitely like a universality across all of the editions that you'll find. But if you were to sit at a table with a stack of international copies, you'll also get a very clear sense of difference that, you know, reflects each country. And so um, you're the first black woman editor of Elle. Diversity has quite been quite a big issue for the news business the last few years. We've talk, talked about it a lot. And I think a lot of publishers realised that, you know, there's a lot more to be done. 
in terms of making sure that publishing and news and media represents its audiences better. And there's a lot, you know, a lot of good things flow from that. You know, is it a big deal that you're the first black woman editor? Like, or is it like Rishi Sunak? You know, it's it's no big deal and that's great. Do you think the industry sort of moving on a bit in terms of providing opportunities? And I think the industry has definitely changed. I mean, I think that is palpable in that, you know, I don't think, I don't think I would be in this position and, you know, some of my peers, you know, Edward Enningful, who is leaving Vogue, but I mean, I don't think he would have been, you know, in that role if we hadn't seen the, the needle moving in the industry. I think it's changing. I think the thing about it, though, is that it's, um, we're sort of seeing it change in sort of, sort of exceptional sort of instances, meaning like, you know, um, big moments, but the day-to-day, like the, the moving of the needle in the day-to-day in terms of like the real true makeup of a, of a company or a brand behind the scenes, you know, like I go to a lot of these runway shows and I'll see the models there kind of on the surface. But then when you look at the, the real sort of structure behind the scenes, um, the makeup of the, of the companies are still incredibly homogeneous. And I still go to attend many, many events in which I'm, you know, the one, only one or the only one of two in the room, you know, sometimes. And so I think that that is when we really begin to see that we still have quite a long ways to go in terms of really um, starting to move the needle with the conversation around inclusion. But I definitely think, you know, the progress that we've seen is definitely worth marking and acknowledging and celebrating but there's very much still, you know, a lot of work that, you know, that we need to see happen. And I think we tend to see growth in some areas more than others for whatever reasons. I'm not sure why. Like, for instance, in menswear and British fashion, that is looking like, you know, quite a, an exciting and diverse community of designers, for instance. Whereas when you look at women's wear designers, it's very much still dominated by white male creative directors at the top of a lot of these really big houses and brands and things like that. So I think it's sometimes you see progress happen at a faster rate in certain pockets and areas than others. Um, But I do think it's good and important to keep these conversations active because I think within fashion, it's a part of its makeup that it ebbs and flows. You know, it's so trend-based or historically has been, you know, like we're wearing black one minute, we're wearing red one minute, you know, it's, um, it's that it's very much in the fabric of this industry and what we do that when it comes to bigger societal changes that you know you're trying to make it's important to keep those conversations active and present okay you know you've, you've done uh, sort of a few a few senior jobs in the magazine business i'm just wondering what you've learned really about what works and um what it takes to succeed in magazine publishing and i just also wondered what advice you would give to someone who's maybe starting out and wants to wants to do well in this business what are the things that you found that work the thing that's been working for me lately at this stage of my career, I think, is that sense of removing a sense of sort of fear from the equation. Because I think because we are working in a climate where there is that narrative of um, print versus digital in certain areas being in decline or we're in constant disruption, even my friends who work at massive tech companies, like they're, they're, they're very much is that feeling of um, sort of lack right now, like, you know, it's a, it's a hard climate, it's a tricky climate, you know, the, the, the highest inflation we've seen in a generation. And so for me, I think, or for most people, I think it can be so easy to sort of give in to these feelings of, of a just general negative feeling and tone, um, or sometimes you don't even necessarily realize it as some of the decision making can be quite fear based. And so for me, it's like, I've just been really trying to 
be really intentional in stripping away that that feeling. Because I think sometimes when you're in a place where you feel like you have a lot to lose, it can make you become more conservative, very cautious, and very measured. But it can also stifle stifle creativity, and it can also stifle you know opportunities that can be you know, pretty incredible and pretty amazing. Because I mean, keep in mind, I like I work in media, but I also work in fashion media. So we're always talking about things like, you know, creativity and like, where does that come from? When um, sometimes, you know, things feel as pressured as they are. I think that is, it has been working because I think with the team, we've been trying to sort of really approach things with a kind of why not spirit, you know, sort of kind of leaning into the chaos, so to speak. And um, allowing that to sort of keep us on our toes instead of the opposite. And then the advice I would give to younger people who are coming up is to really um, make the ever-shifting sort of circumstances work for you. Because I think it can really present opportunities instead of being a hindrance, depending on how you perceive it and and look at it and uh, choose to think about it. Okay. Well, look. Uh, thanks for that, Ken. Yeah, and sort of final question, I guess, just around um, future of magazines, really, because I feel um, definitely looking at those ABCs over the last few years, you know, it's a downward trajectory, and you look at the commercial side of things, that can be very challenging as well, because obviously the brands that we grew up with have got so much competition now out there for eyeballs. There's just so much out here. You know, it's so much tougher and more competitive, I guess than it was back when L began in the 80s. And it kind of had a captive market, I imagine, it and, it and the other magazines out there. So, I mean, how, how do you see the sort of uh, the, the future of L and the future of fashion magazines more broadly, um, given all the sort of challenges that we, that we face? I mean, for us, I think with Al in particular, we have just been really in, embracing this, um, this sense of, us being a brand who contain multitudes, like we inhabit all of these different areas and touch points. We just brought the L Style Awards back in September. Um, we kicked off the month of shows with it. And it's been such a, you know, a key and core part of our brand and our heritage. We brought it back in a new format. We, re- we completely refreshed it. I think the people we, you have around the brand always sets the tone. And so I think, you know, we had just really incredible talent in the room. You know, people like Sarah Burton of Alexander McQueen and Stormzy, um, the designer Martine Rose, the actor Florence Pugh, and Shuti Gatwa, um, and then also just incredible emerging designers from my community. So that bringing events back, you know, I think coming out of COVID, there's we've seen a real sort of rise in appetite for physical interaction. You know, I think uh, you mentioned the mental health. I think we, there is a little bit of a loneliness epidemic afoot right now, and so I think we're seeing that kind of thirst for interaction and engagement. So events is a really big one for us. You know, we've been bringing that back. That's been a key part of our past, and I I, I see it as being a, a, an important part of our future. Membership, you know, that sense of harnessing the power of the collective and celebrating it. That will be you know an important part of our now and our our next. Again, without you know, I can speak to the, the my time at the brand as um, an editor, but also my time with the brand as a reader. I, you know, I really look at it and see growth. I think if you if you look at it in sort of various areas in isolation, you know, we can look at newsstand, which is a part of it, or you know, print, which is a part of it. But when I look at the brand as a whole, having been following it for practically as long as I can remember. It, I, you know, I definitely, I think it's growth. You know, we we have all of these additional touch points now. We have an audience that is a lot larger than I imagine the L audience would have been in the 80s. 
you know, we're reaching so many more women and we're learning so much from them and we're engaging with them differently. And also we have far more opportunities to connect with our heroes. Like, you know, with a monthly edition, you put the monthly edition out every month and you get to reach out to your favorite authors and journalists and writers and tackle the subjects you want to write for you. And then that's it. That's done. That's your one opportunity once a month. Now we have so many opportunities to do that via our events or via the website, you know, every day or the, the, the monthly magazine. So it just creates more opportunity for us um, as a brand and more opportunities for readers to get to know us and spend time with us. Well, look, brilliant. Thanks very much for, for coming on, uh, Kenya Hunt. Thank you. And the best of luck with L Collective. Thank you so much. Thanks, Dom. And thank you, Kenya, for joining Dom for this week's podcast interview. Dom, what were your big takeaways from that? I think the idea that magazines, if they're going to sort of thrive in the future, have got to think really broadly about what they are and what the brand is and how they can sort of extend the brand. So I think for them, you know, it's a monthly magazine. So even with quite a lot of investment in digital, you know, I can't really see them getting to the point where you'd have enough digital content that you can charge people, you know, a lot more for it, especially as there's sort of so much free fashion and beauty content around anyway. So, yeah, I can see why they've done it. So they they sort of said, we're going to charge quite a bit more, but we're going to give you quite a bit more. And I think... um, you know, it's up to them now, I guess, to prove that the value is there so that people will uh, will renew. And not just like me, who signed up for the free um, advent calendar. Not for me personally, my daughter, who, who's kind of very into um, uh, you know, fashion and stuff. But, you know, Kenya kind of said to me that she remembered when she was a sort of young person, she would, she would read Elle. And uh, if this sort of thing was open to her then, she'd have sort of jumped on it, seen it as great value. So I think it's quite a difficult world to get into the sort of world of um, fashion and, you know, cool stuff. So uh, I can see that the sort of benefit of them offering a bit of a, an entree to it. And I hope, hope it goes well. And I think the challenging thing for magazines is that there's not sort of one thing that they can do that's going to work for them. They, they, they've all got sort of different ways, haven't they? So some, some of them do have really big subscription businesses, I think, like, say, The Economist. But others are going to have to um that's not going to work for everyone because people only have a are only ever going to get a few subscriptions out aren't they online subscriptions so for others it's going to have to be something else and i guess for l they're sort of thinking well if we can charge our real super super readers you know quite a bit more but bring them in closer and make that community a bit stronger then that could be the answer for them fingers crossed it works are there any magazine brands that you feel strongly enough about to, to pay for a, a more expensive membership? Well, there is, actually. I've got a subscription to Witch magazine, which, which as you know, isn't really a magazine. It's um, the Consumer Association. Um, as I get older, I really like to sort of, um, you know, complain about things and assert my rights in, 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 in any sort of consumer encounter. And so uh, which magazine kind of gives me the ammunition to do that. And it also um, has the most incredible sort of uh, unbiased reviews of things like, you know, dishwashers, you name it. If you're going to buy something there, it's quite a good, uh, quite a good thing to have in your, having your, in your back pocket. 
Yeah, so I subscribe to Witch, which which costs about um, yeah ten pounds a month. It's quite a lot for a monthly magazine, isn't it? As a subscriber, if you're getting that value out of it, it's worth it, isn't it? I don't currently have a membership or subscription like that, but if there's one that I'm considering, I'd say I've already mentioned them. But Empire, you know, I love keeping track of TV and film and deciding what's worth going to see at the cinema. And I, and I love that there's a lot still in the print magazine that they don't just give away for free online. Like they, they recognize the value of that kind of exclusive stuff. So I think they still do a great job as well. You don't get clarinet weekly. Uh, there is a clarinet and saxophone society magazine, I think it's called, which um, fun fact was supposed to feature on Have I Got News For You in the magazine headlines segment a couple of weeks ago but then it ended up not appearing and everyone was very very upset about it <laughs> i think i'd have more magazine subscriptions but it's only news subscriptions isn't it and you do get to a point where you um have to cut them down and i must say lots of most of my subscriptions are now online yeah that's the other thing so if we're discussing a print magazine all-round product then you know yeah that does narrow it down a bit nowadays well thanks a lot don very fun chat about magazines This has been Future of Media Explained with me, Press Gazette UK editor Charlotte Tobit, Press Gazette editor-in-chief Dominic Ponsford and LUK editor Kenya Hunt was our interview. We've been produced by Bron Marr and Suze Cooper and please do hit like, subscribe and share with your friends and colleagues and we'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.